Hello and welcome back to episode 36 of The Scientist. Thank you for being here. We have missed you. Oh, we have missed you really, really, really a lot. Crazy time. Very crazy, but we're so happy to be back here talking science and talking space with you today. But however, we, Angel, we, we're gonna, we're gonna have a bit of a problem today. Because usually when we're together in the same room, we just have to worry about the sounds coming from one room. But now that we're in virtual space in two different rooms, we have to deal with potentially planes flying over your place and trains running by my place. So this will be fun. Yeah, I think I'm going to have a lot of fun editing this again, because as you said, and perhaps our listeners still didn't know, that we are not recording this together. That is the very first episode that we are not going to be together recording this. That's uh, it. Kirsten is in her house, I am in my house, and we are trying to do this through internet. It's the socially distant scientists. Hopefully this will work, and I really hope that the sound is getting good to all of you. We are very happy to be back, definitely, because it has been a very rough time, probably for almost everyone with plenty mm. of changes. Now we have to be starting to be used to the new normality and well, whatever it is coming. But our excitement about astronomy and science have not stopped. That is for sure. Never. It will never stop. No, it will never stop. If you have followed us on social media, of course, Kerstin doing much more than what I have been doing because there was, for me, was there was a moment in what was that in middle of March or so that it was just too much <laughs> it was just too much <laughs> so it was the moment that uh, our son was already not going to school so it was with him and then starting the classes at university virtual classes we have to update all of that to do recording classes and that is driving me a bit crazy too we yeah. all do what we can and we are so glad that you are here with us today to listen to us talk about space once again I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez and I'm Kirsten Banks And, and we, we are, are the scientists. scientists. Anyway, welcome to episode 36. As you may uh, have guessed, we did have to stop recording for a little while. I honestly cannot remember the last time we recorded. So our previous episode, episode 35, Astrophotography Gear, was actually released on the 11th of March 2020. Oh my goodness. So that is... The 11th of March. Yes. That's over two months ago. Two months and a week ago. Wow. That's... I am gobsmacked. Social distancing became a thing and we couldn't, we couldn't visit each other, so we couldn't record in person. But now... I bought a new microphone and we can record through the virtual space. Yes, that is great because we sold the increasing number of Zoom meetings and some few other online events that we have been doing recently. It is always a good thing to have a good microphone with you. Although next time, I really hope we'll be able to do it together again. 
Yes. <laughs> and we've been trying to keep ourselves occupied during this whole quarantine and social distancing. Angel, what have you been doing throughout this time? There have been a few clear skies over the last couple of months. That is the only kind of relaxed time that I have had, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> because as I was mentioning before, it has been quite a busy period during the last couple of months. I started lecturing at Macquarie University, Astro 1010, Introductory Astronomy, our position in the cosmos. And it is not only preparing the lecture, that usually an hour lecture takes, an, for me, a day or so to prepare. But in addition, as we couldn't be with the students in the lecture theater, we have had to be recording the lecture. And after that, editing the lecture because I wanted to provide a high quality video including uh, very good presentations, a clear sound and you know that I'm a very perfectionist guy. I'm sure your students uh, appreciate that as well. I really hope that. Mm. I'm getting some feedback from them, not as much as I expected. I think that they are a bit shy, I don't know why, oh. but still the feedback is good. But on the other hand, I have been using my telescope in my backyard, taking very nice images of some few uh, nebula. And I think I didn't tell you this, but I recently got a very special H-alpha filter. It is an ultra-narrow H-alpha filter with only 3.5 nanometer thickness. And it is amazing for obtaining, even from the city, because it doesn't matter the light pollution, even it doesn't matter if the moon is up. It is perfect for getting the nebular emission in star forming regions and in planetary nebula and so on. And I'm getting very nice images with it. Excellent. What can we see with a H-alpha filter that we can't with a normal telescope without a filter? Ah, well, you will see the ionized gas. That is a filter that is only allowing to pass a very tiny part of all the light that is centered in 65, 63 angstrom. That is the wavelength of the famous H-alpha line, hydrogen alpha, mm. ionized hydrogen. That is the majority of the gas in the universe is hydrogen. And when it is ionized, it is when we have the star forming regions and we have a nebula. Not necessarily a star forming region because a planetary nebula is not a star forming region, but it is still a nebula. And you can see mm -hmm. very well all the features there. And as the contrast with the background is so good, mm -hmm. because you are not having any other kind of light, you can get very deep images even though you are in the city. And I'm going to say that I'm, my, my place doesn't have two bad skies. Mm, you're really close to a nice big national park, so it's generally relatively dark where you are for yeah, Sydney. Yeah, yeah. Um, considering that it's 15 kilometers straight line to Sydney, to the city centre, I'm not going to complain. I had some issues mm. at the beginning because I couldn't get the polar alignment right, but now I know the trick to do that using the guiding camera and some few systems that I'm not going to go into the details here. But now I can do mm -hmm. that in less than three, four minutes. I have a almost perfect alignment to the South Celestial Pole, so I'm almost good to go. Amazing. Well, I've so been doing something is... a little bit different to that. I did buy a new camera for my telescope and I've tried to wow. use it but it's really hard. <laughs> it's, I forget which one, it's, it's an ASI camera. Yes. Yes. And it's the color one. And I, I managed to get Venus one night. Mm -hmm. It was very cool. I want to try and get the moon though. 
Oh. The moon should be really good. Yes, yes. I hope, you, fingers you crossed, if I try. get it working properly. <laughs> do you know what we should do? One of these nights, as we are starting to release a bit of social distances, you can come here, we can record another episode of The Scientist, but in the afternoon, and then after that, you bring your telescope and we can play with the telescope outside and check how everything is going. And we, we can, can do The Scientists at night. We can do The Scientists at night. That would be also... Um, That's so cool. Yeah. That'll be so good and be much better than my little tiny piece of sky that I can actually see from my balcony in my apartment. We have to see more stars and hopefully align my telescope better with more stars to align on. Yes, that is critical because you need uh, several stars, at least three stars at different positions in the sky to get a good pointing. Mm, yes. At the moment, I've been using Betelgeuse, Sirius, and uh, which one have I... What, what else have I used? There's a third star, which maybe I'm just pointing at a Canopus? star that I don't... <laughs> Canopus? Oh, no. Can Canopus is a bit too far south. Because I get a nice view of north and west, which is not ideal because Regulus? the city is to the north of me. <laughs> Regulus? Maybe Regulus, yes. Mm. So it's a very small piece of sky that I'm actually aligning my telescope on. <laughs> so it's not working very well. Yeah, I have a very good uh, visibility in all directions from here. And even sometimes awesome. I can do the telescope alignment using a cherna that is behind some trees. <laughs> and I can even use the trick of using the diffraction spikes that uh, you see of the star through the tree with the telescope to try to get a better focus. That's really clever. <laughs> Besides that, I'm missing that uh, there's some few events that we were going to be there and they're not going to happen or they, they didn't happen. Starting with Pine mm. Science and some That few was supposed to be this week. That was last week. I had some scheduled events in the Botanic Gardens, in the Cali. And Vivid. You know, yes, our event for Vivid Sydney 2020, that, you know, that we were very excited about that because it is a unique opportunity for uh, doing a bit of science communication to a broader audience. And, and we still don't know exactly what is going to happen with uh, National Science Week, which is in the middle of August, because we still have some few uh, events scheduled for that time, but let's see how we go. Mm. Uh, but I should not complain because it was more or less okay at the end. And I have some relaxing time, as I was saying, with uh, the telescope at night. Uh, but yes, it was a bit of crazy time preparing lectures and lecturing not only to the students at the uni, but also to my own kid here at home. Yes, because you had to be a stay-at-home teacher as well. Yes, I always have been doing that, but uh, in a kind of a more relaxing environment and more just easy things during the afternoons, evenings or during the weekend. But uh, now I've been trying to be serious with Luke, with my son, and oof, it was hard, you know, <laughs> our kids have. <laughs> I see you've also gotten a few interesting photos of a few comets. Ah, well, yes. not a few, but one. Yes, the Comet 2020 F8 swarm that was uh, discovered not that long ago, a couple of months ago. Not very long ago. No, 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 no. It was when everyone was looking to the other comet, to the Atlas comet, that it was disintegrated yes. because they were expecting. And I, I think you, you even mentioned that in the previous I episode. did. Atlas was supposed to be really bright. It was predicted to be brighter than Venus. It was predicted. And then it just disintegrated. Yes, Comet Atlas disintegrated. Uh, there are still some degrees that are visible and people still are observing them. Uh, but uh, 
at the same time, this other comet, uh, C2020FH-SWOM, appeared, and it was bright and easy to see. Uh, it was reaching magnitude five, five and a half. Which is about uh, the limit possible... of the human eyesight, by the way. Yes, yes, yes. So it was possible to see it with your naked eye from a dark place. I tried from here, I couldn't, but I could get some mm. few images because at the same time I was using the camera through the telescope and my digital camera on top of the telescope in piggyback. And I got very nice images that was at the beginning of May when we could see that comet from uh, this latitude, from the, from the southern hemisphere, just three hours before the sunrise. So we still have it relatively high in the sky. Now it is much harder to see because mm. it is much closer to the sun. But it was great because combining the images that you realize how fast the comet is going with respect to the background. It took me oh, to, really? extra, yeah, to, to align that. But also with the digital camera on top of the telescope, I was able to get the tail. I was very surprised to get almost a nine degrees tail. Oh, wow. For but, reference, the moon is half a degree wide. So that's 18 moons 18 across? across. Wow, yes. that's incredible. But the tail was very faint. The bright part of the comet, the coma, was very bright and easy to see, as well as the beginning of the tail. But you really need to stack many individual frames, 30, 60 seconds each, perhaps 20, 30, 40 of them, to see the full extension of the tail. And with that, you will also discover some features in the tail. And as it was kind of broken in a part, it was really nice. I have shared my images in my blogs and in social media, so you can see them there. Excellent. And Angel, I think you'll be happy about this. We've finally had the last supermoon of the year. Oh. <laughs> After having like four of them, the last supermoon of 2020. You don't have to think about supermoons ever again for the rest of the year. Yes, that was nice because I was contacted by a journalist from ABC and she wrote a very nice article because she wanted to emphasize that the supermoon was not a thing. Excellent. But the beautiful thing about this article was that uh, she was using the supermoon as an excuse for people to look at the moon and trying to discover a bit more astronomy, and in particular to get kids involved in astronomical observations. Ah. Because I was sharing the images that my son and me have been taking of the moon during the last few years, and it was really nice because, well, the, the credit of the images were given to Luke. Oh, that's so sweet. Luke was very excited about that because actually we were missing the image of the full moon. So we took some few photos of the super moon and we even increased the, the saturation of the images and we got a very nice color image of the full moon. And Angel, answer this for us. What color was it? Was it pink? No, it wasn't pink. That's Good. Moon. Because the moon is not pink. Yes. <laughs> the moon is not pink and the moon is not blue and the moon is not with any other funny color. Unless it's a lunar eclipse. Yes. That's exactly. the only time when it is a different color. Mm -hmm. Well, in this point, I will recommend our listeners that if they have not had a chance, please listen to our episode number two. Mm -hmm. strawberry moon that it, we it's, it doesn't about. age it's great yes and i had some feedback about that because on the 8th of april 
You were talking and complaining about the pink moon. Pink super moon. Yes, because people were getting all excited that the moon was going to be pink. And I just, I just can't see people being disappointed when they look up at the sky. Because when you look up into the night sky, you want to be able to have that lovely feeling of seeing something being like, wow, not being disappointed because some news article showed you a color, a, the color image of the moon where the moon was bright, pink, magenta. And then oh. you're looking at the moon and being disappointed. Like, no, that doesn't, yeah. that, that doesn't happen. It's not pink. Hi, yes, I don't know how the media is still able to do that. Um, I would like to complete this with a very funny comment that our friend Rami Mando did to your tweet complaining about the super pink moon or the pink super moon. He said, I'm super tempted to list all the colored moons and do a table related to date and moon's radial direction to showcase the Doppler shifts not matching color. Ooh. Supermoons should be blue, not pink or blood, as they approach perigees and has. Mm. And you answered, that would be a fun little project. That would be a fun little project. I forgot that I answered that because it was just so long ago. <laughs> but I do want to mention just quickly, one of the ways that I've been using my time in quarantine and in social isolation is, well, doing my PhD. That's a thing that I should admit that I am actually doing to show that I am indeed doing work actual proper work but I've also been I've also joined TikTok which you may have heard of it's this somewhat new app it's it's gotten very popular very quickly over this year you know you can make videos that are up to 60 seconds long and I've decided to use it to post fun facts about space and so on the 8th of April when there's this pink supermoon happening I decided to post a video about how the moon will not actually be pink in color and describe why it's actually called a pink supermoon. So the reason why it's called a pink moon is because this full moon that occurred in April occurs at the beginning of spring in Northern America or in the Northern Hemisphere. And around this time of the year, this pink flower called Phlox subulata, and I, I hope I'm saying that correctly, this pink flower starts to bloom around this time when, the, when this full moon occurs, which also goes by the name of moss pink. So that's why this particular moon in April is called the pink moon. You can put all the names with all the colors that you want to the moon, but at the end of the day, as we said, the moon is going to be just the color it is. And exactly. In, in, if it is changing the color, it is going to orange reddish because it is a lunar eclipse. It's the atmosphere. The atmosphere does the best, has mm -hmm. the best coloring of sunsets and moons. And it's just, yeah, it's great. Mm -hmm. I think we are going to mention a bit more of your videos later. Uh, because a little I, bit. I think it is a great way of doing outreach. Although I have to confess, I feel that it is much more for young people like you than from mm -hmm. old people like me. That I don't see myself. I don't know. There's don't know. there's been quite a few older people commenting on my videos. Um, I don't. It's hard to see, hard to tell how old these people are, but there are lots of people who. There, let's just say that there is some interesting people on TikTok and they have some very interesting ideas. For example, one just off the top of my head that I saw this morning, I posted a video about how someone had asked if Pluto was a planet, then is our moon a planet because it's about the same size? I'm like, oh no, our moon is a moon because it orbits around the Earth, yada, yada, yada. 
other things about Pluto and dwarf planets and stuff. And someone commented saying, oh, but technically the moon orbits around the sun. And that, that just, that, mm, no. What do you think, Arnel? Now that we're on this topic, what do you think? Does no, no, the no, moon no. orbit the, around the, the sun? The moon is orbiting around the earth. The earth is moving Which around. Which is, yeah, exactly. But strictly talking, let's go to emphasize this again, because you have also mentioned this in another video, talking about Jupiter and the sun. Because mm -hmm. everyone is moving around the center of gravity, the common center of gravity. Yeah. So that is the same thing. The same thing with the moon and the earth. Both the moon and the earth are moving around the sun in the center of gravity of the moon-earth system. Yes. That is inside the earth, meaning mm -hmm. that what we see it is that the moon is going around the earth as the earth yes. is moving around the sun. Yes. Oh. It takes a lot of effort to figure out which comments I should reply to and which ones I shouldn't reply to because some are just, it, it just it's just a bit too much sometimes. Mm -hmm. But it is great that you are getting plenty of feedback. I also want to recommend to listen to our episode 20, that is in season two, Fly Me to the Moon, where we talked a lot about the moon and actually it was the episode where my then six-year-old son was participating too. Yes. He was telling a bit, well, he was very shy, but he was telling a bit. He was how very we shy. Were it getting. was so precious. And do you know what did we have for WhatsApp in that episode? Hmm, I wonder, was it maybe Beetlejuice? Yes. <laughs> Beetlejuice. What a segue. Take it away, Angel. What's new with Beetlejuice? We told you, Beetlejuice will not explode. And it didn't. Beetlejuice have been during the last, even a couple of months, let's say, basically exactly what we said. At the end of February, beginning of March or something like that, it was when it was increasing again the brightness and it was recovering the brightness much faster than in the way that it was just dimming. But it reached mm. not only the standard magnitude of around 0.5, but even sometimes joking that it was a bit brighter than that. Yes, and the, the Beetlebot on Twitter posted that I am 101% my usual brightness. Well, I, ha I have seen 105. <laughs> I have seen even 105. 105%. Yes. Beetlejuice is just trolling us now. Hmm. But I would like to also connect this with a very interesting paper that has been uh, published it was submitted to Archive, but uh, it is compiling observations using a technique that is called differential speckle polarimetric observations of Betelgeuse at the 2.5 meter telescope at the Caucasian Mountain Observatory. And that is a paper with some few uh, authors. Uh, the first one is Safanov, B.S. Point. But the point is here that these observations are confirming that what we were seeing in Betelgeuse were just a consequence of dust, a cloud of dust mm -hmm. created in the external layers of Betelgeuse that have been moving. They have been able to create even a movie oh, be oh. because these observations allowed astronomers to get resolutions that have in the limit of diffraction of the telescope. Uh, I think that they were saying around 0 0.05 seconds in resolution. And, and that is enough for resolving the size of Betelgeuse. And if you see the movie, you see the, the dust cloud moving from one place to the other. That's really cool. Very cool. 
And it will be interesting that in the same way that a lot of publicity came because, oh, hospital juice is going to explode, someone is a bit is explaining a bit all these uh, results. Um, because these are also complementing the observations that were taken with the VLT that we were discussing in a previous episode. And mm -hmm. also some few spectroscopical observations made by um, Levesque and Massey this year that the dimming was not associated to the temperature. It was just the dust cloud moving around. Very nice. It is finally confirmed and just what was going to happen, not related to imminent supernova explosion. And I don't want, I'm going to emphasize, I don't want Beetlejuice to explode <laughs> a supernova yet. We still might have 100,000 years for that. So that's your space news. Surprise, surprise. Unheld talks about Beetlejuice for space news. <laughs> I, I couldn't help myself. I have to, I have to do it. <laughs> it's just so interesting. It's so interesting. It's really, really cool. And I, it's, it's so cool to think that there's a video, an actual simulation video about the dust moving past. It's really, really cool. It is not a simulation. It is that these kind of observations really allows astronomers to really resolve with a very high spatial resolution. So it is actually real observation, real images. Onto my space news though, and I'm very excited about this space news, and it's it's kind of it's a little bit news at the moment, but still very much relevant. On the 24th of April this year, 2020, it was the 30th anniversary of the launch of a wonderful telescope, the Hubble Space Telescope. So Hubble is now officially 30 years old, and I cannot believe that it's 30. Yes. And it's still doing some great stuff. It's still doing some really, really great stuff. And by the time that you listen to this episode, the first ever image or the first light of Hubble would have had its 30th anniversary as well. On the 20th of May was in 1990 was Hubble's first light. And so it's 30 years since Hubble first opened its cameras, opened its lens and looked down into the universe. And in homage to this and in celebration of Hubble turning 30, I have been doing a 30-day series of Hubble space facts on TikTok. So since the 24th of April, I've been going every single day, one day each, talking about what Hubble has discovered for us, some of my favorite images taken by Hubble, and some really fun facts about Hubble too. For example, one of my favorite fun facts is how much data that actually collects, which it... it Usually when I bring interesting space facts, they're usually quite mind-blowing in the way that they're, you know, huge numbers and really surprising. This one is a low number that's surprising. So Hubble produces on average about 10 terabytes of new data per year. That's not a lot for 2020. For, 20, for 1990, that was definitely a lot of data. But for right now in this day and age, that's really not a lot. And I was really surprised about that. What do you think on how? I think it is good enough. We have to remember that the instruments that are at the Hubble, the latest of them were installed a decade ago. That's very true. That is one of the reasons. Of course, if we were able to get to the Hubble and put a new camera with the new technology, a much larger, and not a special resolution, but definitely a wider camera, yeah, we will be able to get more. Perhaps it will be a bit more 
difficult to manage all that information because it has to be transmitted from the Hubble Space Telescope into Earth. Mm. So that is another limitation that we have. And if you compare with the internet traffic or something like that, of course, uh, impossible. Impossible because right mm. now, and particularly in these times that everyone have discovered soon. <laughs> Everyone's using saying, internet. Yeah, I was trying to do a bad job. But hey, there. what about when Starlink is operational and we have internet accessible around the world? Uh, <laughs> should, should I bark you? <laughs> <laughs> Where's Lucia? She'll, no. she'll have to bark at me. <laughs> yeah, she's there enjoying the sunshine. <laughs> but before moving to another thing, I want to recommend everyone to have a look to this very interesting and funny videos that Kirsten have been doing, celebrating the 30th anniversary of the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope. I still can't believe that you were not even born. I know, seven years before I was born. Yeah, that is crazy. For me, it is quite astonishing. And <laughs> and the other thing it is that if you have a chance, have a look to the beautiful image that they released for celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Hubble Space Telescope. Mm. That is a start from in region in the large Magellanic Cloud, NGC 2014, and a little other nebulosity, NGC 2020. And they put the name of the cosmic reef to this beautiful image. One of the nebula is red, the other it is uh, bluish, because one it is an emission nebula and the other it is just a reflection nebula. And yeah, it's just the way that the Hubble Space Telescope has been inspiring us and astronomers and everyone in the world, it is just uh, crazy. It's so beautiful. I love it. It's one of my computer backgrounds. It's just so beautiful. I want to put it on a huge poster and put it on my wall. It's just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. But we cannot forget that in addition of producing beautiful images, the Hubble Space Telescope is also getting plenty of amazing science. That's right. And yet there are actually some few news and I'm going to share one of them because while we were not recording this, that was released a month or so ago. About a month ago, I think, yeah. So it seems that uh, the exoplanet around Formal Hout, the brightest star in the Pisces Austrinus constellation, it, it has even a name. It has the name of Dagon, Formal Hout B, Dagon. Um, because that I was, didn't know that. That was imaged for the first time in 2008, and then it was observed some few times with the Hubble Space Telescope, but it was something that was not coming clear and how that uh, object was there and why it was emitting this amount of radiation in different wavelengths but it was not very well observed in the infrared and it was it was something weird and what they have found and that was the news it is that perhaps and it seems it is not a planet it disappeared it just it's disappeared a, poof. it was just a kind of a cloud because these objects from a half have plenty of debris surrounding the star. Um, perhaps mm, it was it a, is a relatively young star. Ah, yes, it is an A-type main sequence star that is only at 25 light years away. That is also what we can get the spatial resolution to see these details. So if you compare the different images with the Hubble Space Telescope from 2008 till the last one last year or recently, did you see how that point is just going larger and diffuse disappearing. and disappearing so it's just a very clear point of light that everyone thought it was a planet 
And then, okay, for the same few observations, and suddenly it's starting to be more elongated and diffuse, and now it is gone. Mm. Just ceased to exist. I heard that potentially one of the explanations of what this could have been was some sort of planetesimal collision, mm -hmm. which is a very interesting. I think that sounds really cool. That'd be pretty awesome. We actually saw, in some respect, two small planetoid objects in an early solar system colliding, kind of like how our moon, well, not our moon, but a Mars-sized object called Thea collided with the Earth to form the moon. Yes. That would be really cool, if that's what it was. Mm -hmm. Because as uh, we were saying, there is plenty of debris there, and there's perhaps there's protoplanets or even planets there that we can still not see. Not as like, even perhaps even a smaller size of Mars or even smaller than that. It doesn't mm. look like that there is any giant planet because if not, we would have seen it. A very mm. evident. But uh, still, well, we have to be keeping an eye to the system and see how, how it goes. That at the end, it is also the conclusion of the observation that they were conducting. Let's see what happened. Let's go to observe this again and continue getting the data to see exactly how the system is evolving and if we get any other surprise. Mm. Now, I think we've covered a decent amount of stuff from things that we've missed since we haven't been able to record a new episode of The Scientist in over uh, two months. So because we have had a bit of a uh, hiatus due to COVID-19 and social distancing, we've had a few questions come in and we've been talking for a lot right now, but we do want to address some of the questions that we have gotten so far and one that will actually probably turn into an episode soon enough. Angel, what do we have? Who has been talking to us? Because we love it when you talk to us. Please send us questions. We love it. Um, well, I have already mentioned a couple of the feedback that we got. Uh, I mentioned the uh, uh, scooter talking about, you know, the, the supermoon and uh, mm -hmm. our friend Rami also talking about the supermoon anyway, connected to that. Um, we got some few people that uh, replied that uh, we are on their list of podcasts, so thank you very much. For example, Gra Grant William, and that was the 29th of March, he said, on my to-list today is explore a new podcast, so I mean, learn something, a scientist, yay. Yay. So that was great. Also, our friend Gary, that was in the middle of April, so more than a month ago, he was just encouraging us to please do it again. You two can't stop doing this for about 14 years. <laughs> Thank you, Gary. We really appreciate your support. Yes, Gary, thank you very much for these very nice words. He also said, ignoring the fact that it is cool and educational, there is a rapidly growing talk about that in another episode list. <laughs> <laughs> On the 13th of April, the very same Gary asked us, hey guys, did you see this? Hope it helps your community. And he was linking uh, news about SpaceX releasing details of how it aims to reduce Starlink satellite brightness. Unhealth preparing himself. No, 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 no. I had a look to see if I could find some of the Starlink satellites and find out when they're going to fly over my location in Sydney. So I went to heavensabove.com. It's heavens-above.com for those who want to go to it themselves. And you can find out when the Starlink satellites are going to fly over your location. And I had a look at one list, and it was one particular night, and there was a whole bunch of them, of course, because there are 
they launched 60 at a time. So for one particular release of Starlink satellites, there were 60 of them, and there was one that had in brackets next to it, dark. So it was one of the dark ones that they are, I assume, testing to see if they're going to be brighter or, or darker and see how they're going to reflect the light from the sun. And it was quite funny because the dark, the quote unquote dark satellite was the brightest of all of them based on the magnitude estimate, which I thought was quite funny. Plenty of people have been commenting that and also taking awful images of the tracks of the pass of the satellites a week ago, soon after we resumed observation at the Anglo-Australian telescope, uh, they were pointing to the Southern Cross, an object around there, and they saw that all of them passing one after the other, oh, very no. evident in the, in the camera. So yeah, since that we still have to be paying attention to that. Mm. I also would like to thank uh, Duncan Waldron, because he was recommended us, the scientists, to uh, some few lists that they were asking for science communication, academic Twitter, astronomy, physics, friends, um, for podcasts, for my mom. Uh, oh, that's so lovely. Thank you very much for that. Yes, thank you, Duncan, so much for the recommendation. In fact, Duncan is a, a good science friend of mine who works at the planetarium in Brisbane. Oh. And was very, very kind to me when I was visiting Brisbane and using their planetarium for Aboriginal astronomy talks a few years ago. So big shout out to Duncan. Okay. Thank so you. Probably I should try to talk to him in the future because one of my to-do list things, it is just to give some few talks in Brisbane. I have invited a couple of times to the University of Queensland. I have never done it because of time, but I have always thought I would like to go to visit the planetarium in Brisbane and yeah, I should call him. It's so cool. Their planetarium is so big. Like it's not Perth Science Works big, but it's it's big enough that you, you just get lost in space in there. It's so cool. Good, yeah. Definitely a Moscow place in Brisbane then. We also got yesterday a bit excitement with some of our friends in Twitter because we said that we were going to be recording this online and they thought that we were going to be open to everybody to listen and to, to comment. Sorry, guys, we're, we're not going live. The only live events we've really done is at Pine of Science, but maybe that's something we could think about. Maybe that's what we could do for our the scientists at night. We could do like a live cast of us trying to use our telescopes. Yeah, we can try to do that. That would be a very good idea. Yeah, yeah. Mm. good in the, in the to-do projects. So thank you for the idea, everyone. So since we announced on Twitter that we're going to record a new episode and we're so excited to be here, we had a couple of people send in questions. So thank you to those who have sent in questions. First one comes from David on Twitter. Do wavelengths of light contract in gravitational fields? So can gravity shorten wavelengths of light? Hmm. It is a fantastic question. And I will say that if he had been using a GPS, he had been using that effect. Because that is called gravitational redshift. That is something that happens uh, in, in the presence of, of a course. gravitational field. It is just mm -hmm. the light is moving a bit to the red because of the difference in gravity. And without that, if we do not correct for that effect, GPS will not work. That's incredible. Yeah, so we and can... even GPS is sensitive to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so that was one of the very important predictions given by Einstein's general theory of relativity. And uh, it have been proved. 
in many, many, many different kind of phenomena, not only on Earth, but also in uh, pulsars, for example. It is the, the very first detection of the gravitational waves was also a bit related to this. It wasn't an indirect detection of uh, the pulsar that it was just releasing energy in different ways, and they could measure that using the gravitational redshift. And also the uh, the way that uh, black holes move and some few uh, pulsars and all these kind of phenomena, but just in sing single stars, they, they can also be applied, this kind of effect. So yes, it is a thing. So many times we have to explain the difference between the two of them, the cosmological redshift, that is because of the expansion mm. of the space itself and not that the galaxies are moving away, it's at the space that is expanding. And then the gravitational redshift, that is a consequence of the light moving in a gravitational field. Mm. So I guess to broadly answer your question, David, is that light isn't contracted by a gravitational field, it is stretched and made redder. Yes. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Thank you for that question, David. We also have another question from Mark, which we think we will, from Twitter, Mark from Twitter, I think we'll actually turn this one into a full-blown episode and use it for a topic. So his question is, would you explain please the reasons I've heard that planets have moved in or out from the sun and what evidence has been noticed at these form, that has formed these hypotheses? So moving planets, migrating planet planets migrating. in the solar system. That is the so, word to use, migrating planets. Mm. And, and I think it is an exciting topic and with plenty of things that we can tell. So I, yes, I agree with you. It is definitely a topic for a full episode. So I will say that we can even try to do that in the next episode. Yeah, thank you, Mark, for that question. And keep an ear out for an episode explaining the answer to your question. Thank you for that. We love it. We absolutely love it when a question turns into content for an episode. It makes things so much easier for us. So thank you. Thank you very much. But let's let's get on to the topic for this episode. It feels like we've just been rambling on and on, just having a bit of a catch-up, which is totally fine. How long have we been going for, Angel, so far? Well, so far here, 55 minutes, but with a bit of extra because we have been doing the test and so on. So I don't know. I don't know how much time that we are going to have for the main topic. <laughs> we'll see how we go. But today, our main topic is galaxies. And I know you can't see me right now when you're listening to this, but while Angel and I are chatting on Zoom, I actually have a galaxy in my as my virtual background in Zoom. Don't worry, because I just have taken a photo of you and everyone will see very nicely that you are your background it is a beautiful spiral galaxy and we think that we are going to be talking about galaxies and spiral galaxies today what what galaxy is it ah uh, oh, i've forgotten what galaxy this is it was an uh, astronomy picture of the day i'm pretty sure but anyway galaxies let's talk about them we thought we'd start off with just a few fun facts and information about galaxies and just see where that takes us. Because Angel, you've been lecturing about galaxies recently for your on for your course at Macquarie University. Yes, so I have been plenty of information about our own Milky Way galaxy, about different kind of galaxies in the universe and describing a bit more in detail the Hubble diagram. And then just moving into the cosmology that it is what we have been doing in the last couple of weeks. 
But of course, it's plenty of information to share in just one single episode. So we are prepped and primed for galaxies. Yeah, and also it is uh, good because we can connect with uh, the fact that this time of the year is still one of the best for observing galaxies because the Virgo cluster of galaxies is, is up. It's literally there in the, at the beginning of the night. And there are some few fantastic galaxies, very easy to see with uh, small telescopes, including our famous M83, which for me is one of my favorite galaxies uh, to observe with a small telescope. Excellent. So let's get right into it. So the first fact that I want to bring up here is just a very broad one. How many galaxies can we see in the observable universe? This fact does bring a bit of controversy because there's not a huge agreement and saying a, a single number is, you know, it's a bit far-fetched to say just one number, but there are more than 170 billion galaxies in the observable universe. Now, Angel, I know you think differently, or you say differently. I usually say more than a trillion galaxies, but I think it is a consequence of some people counting the billion, I mean, the, what some people say a billion, it is actually a thousand million and something like that. I think I might be wrong, or, or it is just because I have been using different kind of numbers. It is very difficult mm. to know exactly the, the number of galaxies out <laughs> there, not only in the visible universe, but in the full universe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there's uh, more out there than what we yeah, can see. And also because when are we putting the limit between a dwarf galaxy and something that is different? And how are we counting the little fuzzy dwarf galaxies that are there sometimes even in the limit of what a global mm -hmm. cluster is? So what do we count? the large and small Magellanic clouds? Probably in that count, yes. The large mm. and the large Magellanic cloud and the small Magellanic cloud, I think they are large enough to be in the, the galaxy. Mm, large enough to not be a globular cluster. Yeah, but there's some few, there's some few, that many actually, that are very diffuse. Imagine that there are plenty of these low luminosity galaxies that we are only starting to pick some few of them and we are not counting mm. those. And on top of that, um, a little related question with that. Do you know what is the size of the visible universe? Uh, off the top of my head, it's something like 93 billion light years across. Yes. Yes. That, yeah. that, that is the right number. Good. That is good. Hell yeah. Yeah, because it is something else that I have been trying to emphasize in these lectures. You might think that the uh, limit of the observable universe might be if the Big Bang it is 13.8 billion years ago, then it is 13.8 billion light mm. years ago, but it is not. It is much larger than that. The radius of the observable universe is at around 41 and a half billion light years. That's because the universe is expanding. So it's, mm -hmm. it's and it's expanding. The expansion is accelerating, so it's not like it's been expanding at the speed of light for the entire time, and, which then... And we do not know how large the universe is. Which is mind-blowing. And there's <laughs> and there's no edge. There is no edge, that's there for no sure. There is, no there is no center. We know that it is limited in time. We have the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. We don't know if it is limited in space. It might be infinite. 
particularly I think it is it is not. It might be like in the surface of a sphere that you go mm -hmm. from one place to the other and you are never finding an edge, but it is limited in the sense that it has limited space. But we don't know that. And we cannot do that because a large part of the universe, it is not in the part of the universe that we can see. Mm. And it's it's just mind-blowing. And one of the things that keeps people awake at night is the thought of if the universe is expanding, what is it expanding into? Which I will rebut and say that is not the question to ask because that's very much a, a three-dimensional headspace that we live in because we live in a three-dimensional earth and a three-dimensional world. But you can't really conceptualize the universe as a 3D object with a surface and something like a balloon. Like it's, it's a balloon expands into the air around it. The universe is just expanding and it's the space between galaxies and the space between galaxy clusters that is indeed expanding, not... Because it is the space not getting, yeah. that is in some way created and, and expanding. And that mm. is similarly to the way of trying to have the misconception of imagine the Big Bang like the explosion because of the name yes but it was not an explosion so it no. was not something that it was happening in a particular place but mm. in all the universe at once the big bang happened 13.8 billion years ago and from there That's the right. space matter and time were and time and time mm. were created so everything that is in the universe space time energy matter and put matter i say energy the same thing and that was created in that moment and started uh, a cosmic expansion with the space. And during a long time, the expansion of the universe was a bit more decelerating because of the gravity. And there was a moment, I think it was around 6 billion years ago, when the factor that takes into account the dark energy, the, the cosmological constant, it was starting to be important, and it was in the moment that the acceleration of the expansion of the universe started. Mm. But anyway. And from all of that expansion of the universe, we, there was about up to one trillion galaxies created, and tens of thousands of other galaxies have been catalogued, but of all of those that have been catalogued, only a few have been given well-established names. For example, the Milky Way, of course. We live in it. We have to give it a name. Our nearest, biggest neighbour the Andromeda Galaxy, mm -hmm. a good one, always a good one. Then there are ones like the Whirlpool Galaxy, which is just beautiful. And our, one, one of my favorites, the Sombrero Galaxy is another one. But it's really interesting to think about that a lot of these don't have specific names. But it makes sense as well, because there are just so many of them. Yes, there's many galaxies, and of course they only have the very important galaxies or very bright galaxies have a name. I am quite interested to notice that all the galaxies you have mentioned are spiral galaxies. That's very true. Well, I guess that you can't really, I mean, with elliptical galaxies, they're all just kind of big eggs, <laughs> big bright balls of eggs in, just in space. So they don't really have any defining features for us to warrant a specific name. Um, yes, I don't have specific names, I will say, some few of them because they are also radio galaxies, perhaps. But it is what you said, uh, elliptical galaxies are mainly just a kind of a bulge, what we see in the center of our Milky Way, not other spiral galaxies. 
majoritarily made of very old stars, and that is also why we see them with this reddish color. And as elliptical galaxies don't have gas, don't have dust, don't have a star formation, they are not forming a spiral disk or this kind of phenomenon related to a star formation, and that is why they're not so that as pretty as the spiral mm. galaxies are. That's right. They don't have those nice features like this galaxy that's behind me. It's just, oh, look at all those stars and those sparkles. But ellipticals, while they are hugely magnificent in their own right because they're just so massive and big, Pre they don't have those nice details. Precisely. I wanted to say a couple of things about the spiral arms in spiral galaxies because it was quite interesting to try to understand what are they and why we can see them. For example, these regions have plenty of dust. Why are we still seeing they are not obscure? And something mm. also quite important. We know that the rotation of the galaxies, it is a bit different to what happens in the solar system. So we have um, in the solar system, the, the farther you are from the sun, the more slow you are moving around the sun. That is following exactly. a Keplerian orbits that they are called mm -hmm. the sun center. But no, that is not what happens in galaxies. In galaxies, we have um, several components. We have the in the spiral galaxies I'm talking about right now, the bulge, the spiral disk, but we also have the huge halo that is mainly made of dark matter. Mm. Spiral galaxies have something that we call differential rotation that we can explain how at large distances they are still moving at very large speed because of the presence mm -hmm. of dark matter in the halo. An interesting question was also why this differential rotation is not destroying the spiral arms. So during the last uh, few decades, we have been able to trace very well the spiral arms, particularly in our own galaxy. And we have found that the spiral arms are very much related to star formation phenomena. So we are finding plenty of uh, association of young stars, what we call OB stars, OB association. And we can also observe plenty of nebula, star-forming regions, H2 region. And of course, the molecular clouds that are mainly mm. associated with the spiral arms in galaxies. Not only the dense molecular cloud, but also the neutral hydrogen. Although the neutral hydrogen it is much more difficult to trace the spiral arms because uh, it is almost everywhere. It has a bit of larger concentration in the spiral arm, but it's not that easy. Mm. Talking about the, the spinning and the speed of the rotation, I've heard and I've read that galaxies can spin in a direction that you would assume just by looking at it. Because when you look at a spiral galaxy, you see it downwards or, or upwards, whichever way you want to think about it. And it spins in a way that the spiral arms follow the rotation. Now that makes sense to me. But some galaxies have spiral arm leading rotation. So instead of, it looks like it's going backwards. How does that happen? Only I've always wanted to know, very, how does that happen? Very, very, very few of that. Well, that is connected to what, uh, what I was trying to say at the end, but I can, put, I can say it now. That is very probably a consequence of galactic interactions. Ah, that have good old mergers. That have disturbed the way of the spiral arms and what we are observing in the spiral disk. Because mm. something that is important, and before that, I don't want to forget that also for tracing the spiral arms, 
something that we have been using very well, and that will be a topic for another episode, will be using masers. Masers? Yes. And now that sounds cool. These are just lasers, but in microwave frequencies. And we can observe them very well. As they're in microwave, they're in radio wavelength, we can observe them very well through the dust of the Milky Way. And also, and because we can use the technique of BLBI, the Very Large Vice Lane Interferometry, using antennas in different continents, we can get a lot of spatial resolution, and with that uses the parallax to get the distance. Oh, very cool. And that is the best way, actually, for tracing the spiral arms in, in our galaxy. A combination of all these factors, we have been able to understand a bit better how our Milky Way is. That is a bit of a mess. It is not as beautiful <laughs> as a majestic spiral galaxy like M51 or M83. It is much more, the spiral arms are a bit more disturbed and broken. There is two main spiral arms, but between those arms, there are plenty of stuff that's around there. And yeah, little ones. <laughs> but still, we have these spiral arms. And something important it is that these spiral arms are not physically connected. I'm trying to explain this misconception that we have about galaxies, that the spiral arms are just moving as a solid rigid around the galaxy. It is not that. And we can explain very easily that that is not possible because as a consequence of the rotation velocity, the differential rotation of the galaxy, if they were stuck, if they were fixed, they will be calling, 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 calling down, forming <laughs> a very weird structure that we don't see. Mm. So we know that they are not connected groups of stars and gas. And that is when one of the most important theories to explain spiral galaxies was introduced. That is the spiral density wave theory. Oh, I've not heard of this before. You should. <laughs> that is <laughs> astro thing. That is just uh, that there is regions in the galaxies that have a larger density of stuff. So stars mm -hmm. and gas, everything is moving, following the more or less elliptical orbit, but with not too much electricity. They are getting into these regions that have a bit larger density, and particularly when you have a cloud of gas that is going into that region that have larger density, the gas is going to condense and collapse and form a star. And then it is where yeah. you're going to start seeing giant stars, star formation, a plenty of dust, and all these tracers that uh, we were discussing. And as that particular cloud and the stars that we're creating are moving away from the density wave, then the majority of the bright stars have already died because these are the bright mm -hmm. stars, giant stars that only last for some few million years. And we, only That's have, right. and we only have the remaining stars that are not that bright. And that is why it seems that there are many more stars in the spiral arms than between us. But it is mm. not. And there are fantastic animations that you see how stars individually are moving and they are collecting in the spiral arms because of this structure of density waves. And stay there for a bit and then it's going continuing. So it is That's just really fascinating. because of that. The only thing it is how these uh, density waves were created and using simulations, just very easy simulations, 
distorting from having a perfect galaxy with a perfect spiral disk roundish, mm. moving all the stars in a, a perfect uh, um, circumferences. It just you distort, distort those from being perfect a bit, and then you move them with just a bit of eccentricity, you get that. You get beautiful spiral galaxies with two very well-seen spiral arms. That's really cool. And to think that elliptical galaxies are just formed when two spiral galaxies crash into each other and rip each other apart. <laughs> I think spiral galaxies have a much, a much more beautiful origin story than the elliptical galaxies. Elliptical galaxies, they still have the very interesting things, particularly a supermassive black hole in the center. Of very the true. Galaxies. Like and, an 87 star. For example. And all the stuff that we are starting to see that is actually in the outer skirts, so the very diffuse features that are tidal tails, shells, disruptions of matter, that is, have been consequence of the evolution of the galaxy eating more dwarf galaxies, and that mm. is forming at the end an elliptical, big elliptical galaxy. Which was basically what my thesis was about last year. <laughs> big galaxies eating little galaxies. Although sometimes they merge with large galaxies too. Anyway, I've talked about that before. So galaxies, they have some pretty awesome origin stories, but you know what? We've been talking for a long time and we know that we can't get to everything about galaxies as much as we would like to, but let's go to what's up. And because now is a great time to look at galaxies, let's look at a galaxy. What galaxy do we want to look at on hell? Um, I have been checking some few of the galaxies and we have been mentioning some few of the beautiful galaxies that we can observe in this time of the year in previous episodes. For example, in episode 8, we were talking about M83 and was a body dedicated to M83. And then in uh, episode 23, we talked about M87, the giant elliptical galaxies in the center of the Vigo cluster. In episode 26, mm -hmm. the Sphero galaxy. And that is also observable in this time of the year. And I have chosen a galaxy that uh, is very similar to the Sombrero Galaxy, although I like it much more. It has a name. It has a, um, a proper name. It is NGC 4565, the Needle Galaxy. The only two names of NGC objects that I know are NGC 1976, that is the Orion Nebula, that is the year I was born. And NGC, nice. <laughs> NGC 4565, which is this beautiful edge-on spiral galaxy. That it's is so sharp. Yes. It's just, oh, I'm looking at a photo of it now, and it's just, whew, I feel like I'm, my face is being cut just looking at it. I was completely wow when I saw this for the very first time because um, mm. it is famous to see, okay, an age-on galaxy is the Sombrero Galaxy. And yeah, you'd still see the dust in the middle, but it was not as evident as when I looked when I was a teenager to this galaxy and I found so clear the very long dust line because that is really almost completely age-on. The Sombrero Galaxy is not, it has an angle. Um, it is, a bit like Saturn. Yes, and, and it is just so beautiful also because there is a tiny star very close to the bulge. It's very easy to distinguish it. And I have taken some few photos with uh, several telescopes. 
It is one of my challenges from the next few weeks, hopefully the weather cooperates, Fingers crossed. <laughs> to try to get a nice image of this galaxy using my new equipment. It's so beautiful. And here are a few facts about it. It's about 30 to 50 million light years away in the constellation of Coma Berenices. I don't know how to say that, but Berenices? No, I, Berenice. I, I will say Berenice, but that is in Spanish. I don't know how it is in English. Berenice. <laughs> It was first recorded in 1785 by William Herschel. It's just, oh, it's, it's amazing. It is it's so pretty. Really, really beautiful object to observe. There have been some beautiful observations also using the Spitzer telescope. Oh, and Hubble has taken a photo of it too. There's a detailed view of part of the disk. Oh, it looks gorgeous. Definitely, it is a very nice galaxy to have a look to. And just using a small telescope, Particularly if you are in a dark place, and you have to be in a dark place, if not, it will be mm. difficult to see it. But a small mm -hmm. telescope in a dark place, you will see it. Although from Australia, it is perhaps not too, too low over the horizon because it is in Como Berenices and you still see it very well from here. So it's mm -hmm. good, um, but you can observe it definitely very well from the northern hemisphere. Excellent. So one for everyone. Good. And I think that after one hour, 21 minutes recording, and let's see how much it is at the end. <laughs> We'll see how this goes. I hope you have enjoyed this episode that we've finally come back. And if you have any questions, send them to us on Twitter at The Scientists. You can also send them to us on Facebook. Like, share, comment, do whatever you like with this episode. We will be back with more. And I'm excited to keep giving you guys Scientist content. Yeah, for sure. It was great to be back. Although I'm fearing the moment I have to edit this because we saw the little uh, things that we had have. Uh, but that will be my problem, not yours. <laughs> Give me a new project for you on hell. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. Yeah. Thank you very much. And talk to you soon. Hello, hello, testing, testing, talking again here. <laughs> and now your turn. Testing, testing, one, two, three. We're speaking from virtual space. Oh, loud. <laughs> you know, I, I did this. Oh, oh my goodness. What is that from? That, that is the feedback with the microphone. If I have it, oh dear. no problem. If I'm going there, no problem. In the moment I do this. Wow. Anyway, let me Why is that happening? Let me let me check how this is going. Hello and welcome back to episode 36 of the Scientists. Thank you for being here. We've missed you. <laughs> it didn't work very really well. That's right. What? <laughs>
<laughs> Sorry, I, I don't know what happened, but it jumped. I couldn't. I, it I jumped. Had, oh, I, okay. I, I could hit you all the time very well. And now in that little segment, it just jumped. I don't know if it was some problem with the connection. <laughs> or what. Can, okay. you, can, you try it, can you try it again? Yeah, I'll try it again. So that is episode number 36 starting. So my name is Angel Lopez Sanchez. And I'm Kirsten Banks. And we, and we are this guy. That's not going to work, is it? Let's go to do it again from the beginning. I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez. And I'm Kirsten Banks. And we, and we are, are the scientists. Ah, there is some delay. That is the problem. Yes, the, okay. that's probably not going to work. Let's go to try. Maybe, maybe, maybe I could say it once, then you could say it once, and, and you could put it over together. together? <laughs> maybe. Or I can try to use something from a previous episode. That use I, something from another episode. That's, I, yeah, I, use, I, use a different one. But let's go to try your last one. And, okay. and let's see how it goes. Okay. I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez. And I'm Kirsten Banks. And, and we, we are, are the scientists. The scientists. Yeah, you something from another episode. <laughs> the delay's not gonna work. <laughs> I the delays. Um, if you noticed a little bit of a change in the quality of audio there when we said we are the scientists <laughs> that's because we had to use a different audio clipping from another episode because the delay on zoom and the delay with the internet does not work very well when we're trying to say things at the same time in unison it was hard I, I, I think it's hilarious yeah i hope i will be able to get some magic here and try to make it work and if not if you hear that is very good then probably at the end i just gave up and as you said i just from a previous episode. So, how was it? Yeah, it worked. Yeah. <laughs> it so, seems to work. Hi, that is Angel finishing editing this track at 10.30 p.m. I started doing this almost 12 hours ago. I love interferences, but I managed to get our voices of the scientist as they were recorded in this track. I hope you have enjoyed it and talk to you soon. Bye bye.